Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Tarzan. again is Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. Now this is a special one for me. It struck me while viewing it this most recent occasion how much of Tarzan has had a strong lasting impact on my worldview and on my own work. Never has a jungle and its inhabitants seemed so very vibrant and alive. In fact it still leaves Cameron's avatar in the dust. If you go through the cartographer's handbook, there are definite notes when you're like, hang on a second, there's some Tarzan in that. And by the time this comes out, book two, hopefully, will be out there. And uh, there'll be even more that uh, that kind of rings a bell or two. We're a little beyond book two now. I'm busy writing the seventh. And in fact, Tiger's Eye, the third book, will remain the piece of work that I've written most heavily influenced by Disney's Tarzan and the Jungle Book. Ironically, as inspirational as it is, some of its chief weaknesses are living in the shadow of its own influences, a situation that ensures it will never be as recognized as they are. This may be the case, even if in many ways it manages even more beauty and thrills, taking you by the hand and pulling you into an emotional roller coaster ride. Let's start with the first thing that uh, uh, struck me about this um, way back in 99 when I saw it, around about the time The Iron Giant came out, and I was talking with Sharon yesterday uh, about the, the difference in animation techniques. Dan, because it's so important and integral to the actual presentation of the film, how do we explain deep canvas in audio? Uh, let's, I'll see if I can. Okay. Uh, so... I mean, it, Deep Canvas was a huge technical achievement for the studio. Because, I mean, Disney had already been tactically using 3D elements in their films for the entire Renaissance, really, and increasingly so, more and more with each film they made. Um, Deep Canvas was a new tool that they developed that basically allowed them to marry the 3D elements to the 2D look and style of background art that Disney had always traditionally done. Basically, it allowed their background artists to take an existing 3D object mesh, like, say, for that like, that sort of a glamour shot in Tarzan of, the, of him sliding through the trees. Yeah. Uh, like, say, the, the tree would be a 3D object, a 3D model like in any uh, 3D film. But they could take a frame of the shot of that from the from the angle the camera would see it 
in the shot, and they could basically paint over it. They could paint over the tree, and the and deep canvas would remember what like colors and textures and everything they had painted on the tree from that angle and apply it to the mesh. And this is actually a really common tool now. Uh, it, I mean, they can basically paint on it like they could in Photoshop, but it applies to a 3D image and remembers and sticks there. Uh, ZBrush is a, basically a more refined version of this, and it's an industry standard at this point. I, I watch like a model or texture artist use it every day. But, so does, but that, actually, of, does that turn up in video games, or is it specifically in animation oh yeah. films? Oh, yeah, in games, animation, basically almost anything that is creating detailed 3D uh, objects, characters, environments. Gotcha. It's it's a very intuitive way to work, being able to paint on a 3D object rather than try to do do kind of an old style. Here's a 3D object, and now here's kind of a flattened out plane that yeah. represents where textures are going to be and then we're going to kind of try to draw it all it, it's just it wasn't super artist friendly but this sort of technique allowed the existing background artists who know how to paint on in something like photoshop or or on a canvas and just do that exact same thing to a frame of animation over a 3d object and the computer will remember where that stuff is supposed to be it just it's a much easier workflow for them and it's this industry standard type software now but this was one of the first major applications of that kind of tech to an animated film like 15 years ago, which is pretty crazy. And you'll see this used a lot in Atlantis and Treasure Planet later. Yeah. If you could figure it as like a diorama in 3D animation and then the uh, the 2D cells are placed within the diorama to give the impression of depth of field in the film. Does, does that make sense? Is that about... Similarly so. It's... It's not exactly in the same sort of way. I mean, there's lots of techniques for combining 2D and 3D, which Disney have been using up until this point. Mm. From the very, very early versions where they basically just created a 3D background and rendered it out in a specific way where it was just outlines and then treated those as kind of the background cells that they then painted over and just did 2D animation. Wasn't that in Oliver and Company? Like in Oliver and Company and the Great Mouse Detective Big Ben scene. uh, They they mostly just used it for backgrounds and very, very specific props like vehicles and ships and stuff early on and Little Mermaid, that sort of thing. But uh, this is, they're still kind of doing the same thing. They are creating a 3D set and background and then using that, basically rendering out that as a background that the animator could then draw over seeing like frame to frame how that background changes yeah. and incorporating his 2D into that. So it is still, I believe, a 2D image drawn over that background, but he's taking that animated background into account in a way that you normally could not. Very impressive results when you look at it. Absolutely. This made my jaw hit the floor, uh, especially on Blu-ray. It is so pretty. It is gorgeous. Uh, it, it's it's more obvious now that I'm, I'm thinking about the tech, and this this was apparent to me yesterday. How the um, and this is mainly sort of repeating what uh, we were talking about regarding earlier Disney, how the gorgeous backgrounds don't exactly entirely mesh with the characters within them. The backgrounds are painted in one way, and the characters in an entirely different way. Um, but there are uh, techniques that are used to blend them, like uh, the lighting and the way that the uh, the sunlight sort of uh, is hand animated as shining on them in in little grid lines when they're on the ship and then through the leaves to create the light and shadow patterns that mesh the two together. Yeah, and the use of little 3D effects as Mm. well, which I hadn't noticed before, but uh, like I get the same shot of Tarzan sliding through the trees. If you actually look carefully, they are, and I believe they're doing it in 3D with standard effects engines. Maybe they're doing it in 2D, but it looks like they're creating little kind of 3D 
dust clouds kind of following him and little and uh bits of grass and leaves uh flying up and yeah yeah and, and awake yeah. behind him at it, yeah, the particle effects basically at his feet which just creates one additional level of interaction with that background yeah that just makes it and it's a very small but it's a tiny little tangible thing that makes it feel like he is actually interacting with that 3d space he is evidentially enmeshed in his environment he absolutely is i mean yeah. this is the most expensive disney film produced to date and i think because of this tech it especially it really does show they repeated the investment style uh with tangled i think they were hoping that um the film after this might pay off dividends well obviously they hoped that tarzan would be huge but in the way that tangled was big but frozen was enormous it's made that investment in the tech worthwhile absolutely this is a very big step for 2D, even if it is kind of coming at the tail end of yeah. sort of right at, right as Disney 2D is starting to go way downhill. But I, I mean, <laughs> so this it's such a is damn still, shame that this is where they were like, right, let's wrap it up now, shall we? It really is. Unfortunately, it does still all come back and in more refined ways. Like I'm sure the stuff, some of the stuff they figured out here, mm-hmm. even all the way down to Princess and the Frog and Winnie the Pooh on that on the kind of 2D resurgence that happened, yeah. that those those investments and those ideas and techniques are still paying off. The, the opening sequence is eight minutes worth of wordless storytelling. I think this is the thing that struck me the most because until they start speaking, and, and let's face it, friggin' Turk comes in really early and start and sort of sets the tone for a lot of the early Tarzan stuff. Um, but up until then, the whole sequence with getting off the boat and then pulling their lives together very swiftly in, in montage um, and then um, uh, Carla discovering young Tarzan, all of that without words, all of that visual storytelling, it's masterful. It's Disney at their absolute best. I adore this opening sequence. Absolutely. It's something I began to notice a bit in Mulan as well, just mm. watching it this last time. In these last few films, the directors have really let character performance and cinematography tell more of the story and emotional beats than they have been before because yeah. there are a lot more moments of quiet and more meaningful looks and small expressions just stuff communicated without dialogue and it's not like previous disney films never did it but it's i sense that they were growing way more confident over time in their ability to use standard film and performance language to communicate information elegantly mm. which which i really love watching in these last two films there's also, uh, probably along with Mulan, uh, the, the two that are closest to the legend of Korra, for all you Korra fans out there, just in terms of motion and, and, and the polish on the characters and the, the incredible backgrounds. The kineticism of the action blew me away in 99. It still does today. It's still breathtaking. I, I don't just want to make this whole thing superlatives. I'm kind of astonished this wasn't more huge. I think there are definite reasons I can put my finger on. I've got a, a, a short list at the end of reasons that Tarzan is held back. But um, this was the summer of the Phantom Menace and the Matrix. You know, they're, they're pushing the boat in different directions. <laughs> and then Tarzan's in the middle of it. Not exactly forgotten. I think it was still, it's still like made four and a bit, 400 and odd million. How long is it? It was near, nearly 500 million. So it's really the last. The last major success for Disney animation before the Death Spiral starts. The Death Spiral. 
We, I mean, there are plenty of death spells in this film, but uh, no, it, it cost 130 million versus uh, Mulan was um, Mulan was only 90 million, so that's uh, that's yeah. that's a lot extra. Uh, it really is. This would, yeah, I mean, again, the most expensive one until Treasure Planet, I believe, which is about 10 million more. So, uh, Sharon, anything that particularly struck you that you want to describe about the opening sequence with um, color? Um, I think the first thing I noticed was that, and obviously this isn't universal, not all of the films do this, but most of the Disney movies have uh, some sort of traditional storytelling device Mm. at the opening, and Tarzan doesn't have one. Could easily have gone with the book on this one. They could have, but I think, to be honest with you, they kind of replaced that by opening with the very visual, as you say, um, method of communicating and you can see everything that's going on very, very clearly. Mm. And what it actually has the effect of doing is placing it more in the real world. Mm -hmm. Because although obviously Tarzan was a fictional story, it's much less about mythology and fantasy than a lot of other Disney films and I think giving it that sense of being tangible and solid by going straight into the story helps and it really helps to uh, to make it come to life from the word go they make some good montages toward the end of this Disney Renaissance era. Like, yeah. there, there are several, actually, in this film that are some of my favorites Disney's ever done. Actually, they tend to be my favorite parts of the film. It's when they're, they're, uh, they're strongest and they're, they're most uh, able to convey what's going on. I like the way they use the intercuts in this between the human family and the gorilla family to kind of demonstrate that this parental family bond that the whole film is going to turn out to be about is equally strong in both worlds and in fact it's it's the strength of that family bond that's the reason that Carla goes to investigate the the cries that she hears in the first place yeah They don't pull their punches. A small baby gorilla gets eaten by a leopard. And then a mother and father are killed and only partially chewed upon before the film even really starts. When when, when Carla turns up, Sabur is lurking there. No words describe a mother 
terrifying for children who actually would if you, if you start to think about what's gone on but it's conveyed with with curiosity and and uh, when, when because you're looking at it from Carlo's eye view uh, you're discovering the human world and all these weird strange objects and there's, there's wonderful little moments like when she steps over the gun and you get the faint sound of, uh, of gunfire behind it and then uh, you know taps on the uh, um, the picture and, and she can understand about the family and then pieces the things together and, and sees a connection before we even really meet Tarzan. I'm kind of impressed by Savor's design, actually, because mm, mm. it it's like they have taken... It was a leopard? Leopard. A leopard. Yeah, taken a leopard and sort of amplified the curves and the angles to its physical mm. design to where it feels sort of alien almost. It, it does not feel like a... Like, a cat. Oh, look at that. Like yeah, it doesn't feel like a cat or like a graceful, beautiful uh, creature. It feels like a scary, dangerous wrong. There's uh, another animal, or another creature that it's actually been, um, it's developed the uh, properties of a snake. It's got those oh, yeah. great big sharp point, like like scythe-like fangs, and it goes <sighs> like that, and, and, and he, not it, he, Sabur, and it has the hiss and it has the gaping maw and those great big yellow eyes with tiny little pupils in the middle where it's like, I am just gonna, like just a creature of instinct. And it's not thinking, it's just going for her. Uh, but it's got that animal cunning. I go back again to the inspiration for, uh, for, for my work. The Wendigos are based on Sabur. So, um, yeah, this is an, an incredibly uh, uh, frantic uh, opening sequence and you've got this but I, they they juggle it really well as well because like obviously they've got the comedy bit with the baby so that the kids aren't really too worried but at the same time as an adult you're kind of worried because you think you know just because this is fun doesn't mean that they won't you know they've already not pulled their punches twice you're fairly certain that Tarzan's getting out of this one otherwise there's no film but you know you don't know at this stage that Carla will survive oh, they manage the tone very well yeah uh, and uh, I don't know where Sabur got his adamantium skeleton to survive that uh, that leg break, but somehow he did. The, the, the weight of a gorilla, a baby, and a rowboat slams him into a, a winch, like pulley thing, and, and pins his leg, and for some reason the damn thing doesn't shatter. But, you know, he's a strong guy. It's Sabur. And accompanying this beforehand, we haven't mentioned Phil Collins yet. Mm. Oh, yeah. He's quite prevalent throughout the film. Isn't he? <laughs> Isn't he just? <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, in, in all honesty, I love this film, but one of the drawbacks is Phil Collins. They, they set out to make uh, a film 
they couldn't make it a Broadway musical because as far as they were concerned, if Tarzan broke out into song and started singing about what was going on with him, it would break all immersion and then that means that no one else can really sing because if Tarzan can't sing, no one else can sing either. So he would have to have one person singing for everyone. It's relatively easy, I'm sure, to sell Phil Collins to a bunch of sweater-wearing executives. It's a lot harder to sell Phil Collins to a wide audience. Um, he was big in 1987, but this was 1999! <laughs> and now he's very rich and high-profile, but he's not exactly hip. No. I, I worked out, because I was like, right, I'm, I'm going to go back to my CD collection. Who could have hit the right tone for this? I'm going to rewrite Tarzan for you here, folks, just in terms of musically speaking. I actually like the music by Phil Collins, but... I do too, actually. But... I, I don't necessarily like him singing being the voice of Every... the jungle in the, in everyone in this film, but... The voice of Carla, say... the voice of Tarzan, the voice of his disembodied father, the voice of Kerchak, the voice of Turk. He's a weird fit. The, the songs themselves, at least like musically... I actually like a lot. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but I, I'm curious to see who you've come up with as an alternative. Well, I was, th- I was looking through uh, and I was going, no, hang on, that, 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 you know, he wasn't big yet, or it has to be a male, because really if it's, uh, it's going to be singing from Tarzan's perspective, it needs to be a male, needs to be a, a, little bit, um, a little bit more dangerous, less... I mean, you know, if you remember, The Emperor's New Groove was coming pretty soon after this, and they had Sting lined up, and then Brother Bear, and they, they stuck Phil Collins in again. He won them an Oscar. This was prestigious with a bunch of cardigan-wearing... They've, they've been upgraded from sweater to cardigan-wearing executives <laughs> and Hollywood types. <laughs> You know, middle-aged men and women. That's that's fine. There's nothing against middle-aged men and women, but you're not exactly hip. Okay, so who was big in 1999? Moby. <laughs> uh, no, but in all seriousness, um, Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters. This is a guy who's got an incredible range to him. He can go from screaming rock to really melodious singing from the heart and you stick Dave Grohl in uh, in your movie you finally caught a uh, audience that Disney had pretty much given up on at this point that would be interesting I, I would teenagers I would be interested to hear D- uh, Dave Grohl basically singing the same songs just mm. but with a Dave Grohl performance yeah and not not with like a weird Phil Collins layered whatever he does with his voice yeah so yeah, as, as we said, uh, um, I, th- I think it just comes down to uh, it feeling a little bit slightly out of touch or out of date or out of uh, out of context, maybe. It's just not a great. Yeah, it just does not f- tangibly feel like a perfect fit for what mm. the rest of the film is. It, it feels. I, I mean, after having watched it numerous times now, I, I do just kind of associate the Phil Collins songs and the film, and it, it's all sort of works. But it doesn't. There are weird fits like. Hercules and the gospel tune that work quite nicely. That actually, yeah. like, they're, it's a weird idea, but it works great. This is a weird idea that I don't think completely mixes. Yeah. It's, um, it comes down to the fact, well, at the beginning of The Lion King, if uh, Circle of Life had been sung by Elton John, it would have been good, but Lebo M, totally there. Yeah, I guess that's the difference. It, However, they even if Even if Phil Collins wrote every one of these songs, but if he didn't, if he wasn't the performer, I, or like, yeah. I guess that's why I also like uh, Princess and the Frog. All Randy Newman songs and their 
brilliant, mm. but he's not singing every single. He was <laughs> yeah, he was going to. He wanted to sing, and you know, uh, catch him down in New Orleans. And they were like, yeah, we love you, Randy, but it's gonna sound like Toy Story. So yep. yeah, they got they got Doctor John for that one. And uh, imagine Randy Newman singing. Don't you disrespect me, little man. Why is he Bob Dylan? Don't you disrespect me, little man. <laughs> Don't you derogate or deride. But, you know, it, it really does come down to the right person to, to sing for that. I'm all in favor of the people doing the singing themselves. I actually think You'll Be In My Heart should have been sung by Glenn Close. She starts off really, really well. Yeah, I mean, I think their choice to have her begin it and then transition to the voice of the songs in the movie that works for me but it, again it's phil collins so it's yeah. <laughs> so and it it's works slightly less also the dave Grohl idea not out of the realms of possibility a couple of years from now treasure planet john resnick basically yes. singing for jim hawkins two songs that's a good point actually yeah, yeah. and obviously john well, john resnick was one of those guys who's like popcorn in the bag didn't quite pop at this stage at this point dave Grohl had popped and food fighters were big and they still are um, yeah. Phil Collins. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what would have been worse? You two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good friend of mine, Bonio. Come stop your crying. It'll be all right. Just take my hand, hold it tight. I will protect you from all around you. I will be here, don't you cry For one so small, you seem so strong My arms will hold you, keep you safe and warm This bond between us can't be broken I will be here, don't you cry Cause you'll be Yes, you'll be in my heart From this day on, now and forevermore You'll be in my heart No matter what they say So, however, Mark Mancina definitely makes up for the uh, the fact that Phil Collins doesn't quite sound right because he manages to uh, put together something that really... He's got a lot of kind of George of the Jungle-style bongo stuff there, but there's also some lovely kind of flute-type stuff going on to make it sound different to The Lion King. And it's... I don't know why I'm drumming on the table, but it's the, it's the jungle is speaking through Mark Mancina's music. I've started abbreviating my notes because of what I've learned throughout these um, episodes. I started saying Glenn Close as Carla, and I've changed that to Glenn Close and Carla because now, as we have established, the voice is but one part of the performance. So I suppose what we're talking about is Glenn Close and Carla and how she is brought to us by the animators. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned was that they'd given her a slightly more feminine look. Mm-hmm. And I... Just eyelashes. Yeah, and I, I specified that it was a human feminine look. 
because obviously the distinction in gorillas and a lot of their their original designs were based very much on realistic gorillas you can't really tell very easily they don't they might be smaller in in frame and smaller physically but they're obviously not going to have the same cues for uh, a feminine maternal uh, type face that we would have for a human being just uh, folks at home google images female gorilla yeah I mean, basically, they're, they're male silverback gorillas with very large, highly formed heads. You know, that, that, that crown that Kerchak has, that enormous, what's the word, like that, that scalp ridge. That's obviously there and present in the males, but females are not necessarily obviously female. And, and also, it's worth bearing in mind that what we perceive in, uh, in, in animation to be a, a more feminine expression and and more feminine features that's all to do with cultural programming that animals don't have so we're we're sort of trained to look for certain things and as you say one of those things is is the eyelashes the fact that her eyes are smaller and slightly almond shaped compared to Kerchak's uh, and and little things like that so they they've given her this sort of softer more approachable cuddlier if you will kind of demeanor for Tarzan to engage with and, and connect with and that again using this whole visual style puts across this idea that in the absence of his real parents here is this being who is willing to care for him and take responsibility for him and he responds to that and connects with that because obviously he's he's too young to really register that his real parents are gone so he's reaching out to what softness and protection is there and the same way that Sabor has been pushed in the animal direction even beyond what leopards are I think I, like Kala is the inverse she's been of all the gorillas in the film has been pushed closest toward humanity I think in both behavior and slightly in, in looks just a and little bit amorphized and also yeah. in that context comparing her with Sabur Carla is the first animal that we hear speaking English and Sabur never speaks English at all yeah. he doesn't speak in a, any kind of language that the gorillas can understand there was actually a point of uh, language I figured uh, Tantor shouldn't be able to understand the gorillas that it would actually be uh, funnier if Tantor was kind of like the R2-D2 in this that uh, he and uh, uh, Turk were still a team, but um, they had to sort of communicate non-verbally, or, or at least that um, while it was obvious to us humans watching what Tantor was on about, that uh, Turk would have still have difficulty uh, dealing with it, and almost like that, that uh, Tantor was the smartest one in the room. But instead, it's Wayne Knight, and he's uh, uh, it's Timon and Pumba, and obviously yeah. so. To the point where they even force a fart joke in there. But yeah, the, the, the fact that Sabur doesn't talk and almost appears to not have that canniness of, of being able to communicate at all um, puts him in like a, well, definitely a different species. But almost the gorillas being primates have the intelligence levels required for that level of communication. 
which again suggests that uh, either Tantor is a very smart elephant or they just kind of went, look, we're going to have to have the elephant speak. Lance Henriksen as Kerchak, another massively inspirational character. In fact, to the point where I, I based, based my Batman performance on uh, Lance Henriksen here. He's got that same level of intensity of, you know, I said he could stay. That doesn't make him my son. He's just got such gravity to him. And he's not just doing Mufasa. Originally, um, it was actually going to be Carla who dies at the end. But they made uh, Kerchak more of an obstacle for him to overcome. They, they gave Tarzan daddy issues. And then they layered them onto his human father issues. Because ultimately, this is a who am I story. I like that with Kerchak, they, I mean, he kind of represents that uh, authority figure over the main character who is a bit stubborn and does and is at odds with the main character and uh, that the main character is wanting to sort of rebel against. But mm. I like that at the same time, Kerchak does not feel ridiculously, absurdly stubborn for no reason. I, I like the fact that he, in his early um, interaction with Kala, is his initial response to her have, keeping Tarzan is no, absolutely not. When she debates the point with him, he softens a little bit and then asks, like, was it alone? Because that's showing that's not just stubborn no, 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 over and over again. It's sort of a, all right, he's still thinking through it. He's yeah. asking, he's trying to make sure that the things he's worried about, that all those bases are covered. And then if all those, if, if she answers all of those in a satisfactory way and it sounds like that's going to be okay then maybe all right fine mm. that that feels much more human and real leader authority figure and much more respectable too he does he it makes him a character that is not you're that you're not glad he's gone when he dies oh god no no he's uh, uh, he may be um uh fierce but it's apparent from his performance and from the way that he's um, shown to be worrying a lot of the time. His fierceness is actually uh, related to um, a very real uh, worry about the threat of uh, outsiders in the jungle. And um, it's, it's a harsh world. And he ha his duty is to keep everyone alive, or as many as, many as possible. And uh, he takes that very seriously. One thing that surprised me about Kerchak this time round was how quickly and how clearly his uh, deepest motivations come across. Because if you're looking at it entirely from Tarzan's perspective, and obviously early on that's what you're supposed to be doing, it's not really until Tarzan realises what's going on that the, I suppose there's there's supposed to be this fully, uh, full comprehension of the, uh, the subtleties of it, but. Things like uh, Kerchek's reservations about Tarzan uh, a little bit further down the line when he is standing up to to defend his his tribe, if you like, his family group. Um, Kerchek seems to be afraid of his own weakness and afraid of his own deterioration and he's obviously afraid of what's going to happen to the the rest of the uh, the gorillas when he's gone and to have somebody to to pass that on to to have an heir effectively the only person around at the moment to take that spot is Tarzan and he seems to be reluctant to trust that Tarzan will put the interests of the gorillas ahead of his own mm -hmm. which seems kind of 
like a very um, age-old story of the son trying to convince the father that he is capable of, you know, he is going to grow up and he is going to become responsible and, and he can be trusted to do what needs to be done. But at an age where Tarzan doesn't even realise himself that that's the issue, you know, he's still quite young, he's still quite small. Um, and it's something that he couldn't possibly try to convince Kerchek with words. He has to do it by his actions. It's it's by his own demonstration that he's going to get that across. Um, and I think when you see how Kerchek reacts later on when the other humans turn up, I think part of that fear is to do with a not exactly a conviction that Tarzan is untrustworthy but just the fact that because he is not a gorilla because he is human at some point inevitably he will want to leave them and go and be with other humans and he doesn't want to leave the fate of the of the group in the hands of somebody who has a greater pull on them than the pull of this family the whole early sequence of a young Tarzan, I, it's it, the honeymoon period lasts up to the point where Tarzan starts speaking. And uh, we, we get to this stage. For me, that is, that, that, because this whole bit, I don't know why, for some reason with Simba, it's brilliant. But the whole bit with young Tarzan developing his uh, hollow and the, the elephant stampede and stuff, as, as up to the point with the reflection, is a bit annoying for me. Anybody else? I actually really like the young huh? Tarzan bit. Uh, part, partly, I like the. I don't know who they got to do his voice. Alex but... D. Linz. Okay. What? You ever he's, seen he's One familiar. Fine Day? Oh yeah. Oh he's okay. Yeah. You told me this Parker. before. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Uh, I think he was yeah, in Home Alone I... Three as well. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. They're gonna well. be big someday, kid. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but I, I like the. Uh, I like seeing the young Tarzan aspect because a lot of the things that I really love about the older Tarzan and the animation performance and everything else are kind of established here. I, I love seeing the formative version of him kind of crawling around and navigating the jungle, not super well and kind of clumsily, but it, you still see the foundation of it there. And I don't know. I, I enjoy it a good bit. I think I know the uh, the whole interaction with Turk and the elephant and the elephant hair thing maybe it goes a bit long but it, I, I don't know toward the end of this sequence the fact that it brings us to that scene w between he and Kala yeah which I adore no it's totally worth it it's, it's yeah, just yeah. Uh, it's Rosie O'Donnell every time <laughs> I'll talk about Turk in a bit but uh, uh, yeah the, the bit when um, he's uh, staring at himself in the water and I just thought to myself that uh, <laughs> Look at me, I will never pass for a perfect ape or a perfect gorilla. It's, it's the same situation. He, he just, he, he's, he feels like he's totally not right for this um, world he's, he's in. And the whole arc for Tarzan is coming around to realizing I am totally right for this. And again, just a credit to this credit to this film and the way it was directed where there is I mean where there would probably be a song right in that spot mm. to, the, to the effect of reflections here it is just about 10-15 seconds of him looking at the water you know, in his reflection to angry splashing the water to mm. getting some mud on his face to 
just looking at it and then having a realization and it's all just visual there's no him saying a thing but you totally understand every single thought passing yeah. through his head yeah and that that's good animation that's good acting basically. that is indeed and like i said totally worth all the this the goofiness beforehand i mean it's it's disney you expect a certain amount of goofiness and uh, it's it, it just seems kind of mismatched and unbalanced which some of the movie is i actually like it for how it sets up our the early minutes of uh, adult Tarzan and his interaction with both Kala and Turk. Uh, I, the fact that we've gotten to see Tarzan do his little imitating jungle sounds, mm. startling his mother, and we've got to see him start to befriend Turk. And then, as soon as we see him as an adult, the relationships between he and those characters have visibly shifted and changed because they've had a lot of time with each yeah. other. Tarzan trying to go up and scare his mother. She's a don't even think about it. She, <laughs> she knows exactly what he's going to do because she knows him very well. And he's already clearly had a lot of time becoming friends with Turk. So they're just wrestling and scuffling. And everybody else in their whole little uh, family group is familiar with this as well because they're just casually moving out of the way as Tarzan and Turk wrestled their way through the entire nesting yeah. area. But I like seeing that. I like that the young Tarzan section affords us that sense of time yeah. in the adult in the uh, adult version it's almost like this early morning ritual has happened again and again and again for many many years exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, also but yeah you're right the the setting up of Tarzan in the earlier stages as being extremely good at mimicking is key to how he develops in in terms of against the uh, the, the, the people from England yeah a lot of little seeds are sort of sown in that early stage that then develop later it's it's Actually, now that I think about it, it's both like The Lion King and also a bit like Legend of Zelda, uh, Ocarina of Time. So, you know, it's it's early yeah. links, sowing those seeds, which then grow into the sort of the, the lily pads that take him to the bits of heart. Clumsy-ass <laughs> 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 metaphor for you right there. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's aping The Lion King, but... Huh, sorry. Huh. <laughs> I suppose it's, it's even it's worth it again for the Son of Man sequence, which again, despite the fact that it's Phil Collins singing it, and that would have been awesome if Dave Grohl had sung that, it's still a kind of a, a great uplifting song. It's a montage showing you progress. It's a sports training montage as he gets better and better at what he's doing, and uh, I, I love things like in learning you will teach, and in teaching you will learn. It's it's very basic. It reminds you that this movie is actually going to help kids develop. Yeah, that montage is one of my favorite parts of the film. Yeah, me too. M matched by the uh, Strangers Like Me montage a bit later. Mm -hmm. The montages are probably my favorite parts of this whole movie, just yeah. how they're very well made. And the despite Phil Collins singing, the songs themselves, I actually quite like. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I did. I forgot to mention the uh, new pair of directors on this film. That, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. They both Chris of them Buck kind of from the Disney family. Yeah, like Kevin Lima was the first guy brought in. He directed a Goofy movie before. Uh, and, one of your uh, favorites. Do you want to yeah, talk about the Goofy movie a bit? Because I don't think we're going to review it straight off. That's fair. Okay, the Goofy movie is a film that came out uh, right, around, I think, right after Lion King. It's, Haven't we talked about it before? Because I, I said something along the lines of it being painfully '90s or the most '90s film ever think, made. Oh yeah, no, no, and I said that. <laughs> I, I followed with saying it is more '90s than the '90s ever were. <laughs> it, uh, I, and I think we've, we've probably discussed it before we actually started recording. I, I don't know, but uh, it. But yeah, the Goofy movie, it came out right around the same time as Lion King. It was when the Disney had built up about two or three full-size studios, in, uh, Fran- one in France, one in Orlando. They had just ramped up production on tons of movies at once. And a Goofy movie was kind of a smaller film that I believe the French studio uh, produced. And it is very simple. It's just based off of the uh, Goof Troop D- uh, Disney TV show with a sort of older... Uh, Goofy and Max, with Max getting into his teen years, and it's it's very it's silly and it's fun and it's but it has a I'm impressed by how much of a how much heart it has as its core. I really love the father son relationship with the son getting older and starting to distance himself from the father and seeing both from the father and son perspective how that straining relationship feels. Seeing Goofy just having a really still wanting to be part of max's life and trying too hard to 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 do so max just wanting to try having his own problems as a teen with like falling in love with a girl and all this other stuff that goofy doesn't totally understand and just the miscommunication between it there's just lots of there's just a great core to that film that i really really like and i think that kevin lima brought that same thing to this i think even before uh is it Chris Buck? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even before Chris Buck was uh, was brought in, Kevin had kind of found the emotional core of this film. I, I believe he's the one who he was looking for some sort of way to... Uh, I'm trying to find... I'd seen this written down. He was trying to find some sort of way to communicate that, uh, the jo- that similarness, uh, that sense of Tarzan being alike this ape family and basically he found that the hands pressed up against each other that imagery that communicating the whole the entirety of what the film was going to be about I believe that was his initial discovery and the thing that he really latched onto and then he uh, later brought in Chris Buck who uh, they who had been a supervising animator on Pocahontas and would later go on to direct Surf's Up which is also a really good film and Frozen and uh, these two guys, it, it's old Disney vets, but uh, not really, not a whole lot of directing experience between them, uh, came to get together and directed this. Mm. And, uh, and another good pairing of co-directors during the Renaissance. Yeah. Why, does, uh, why do co-directors work in animation better than in live action, do you suppose? That's hard to say, because you're right, there are there are it's almost nothing but co-directors throughout this whole renaissance yeah. period and, and yet I mean, you the don't Russo see that brothers very often are about and maybe the coen brothers are about the only yeah. uh the wachowskis uh, the only accomplished pairs of directors that i can really think of. there's a few so it's anymore just, 
It's just blood relation, apparently, is the only You've thing. You've pretty much direct- got to be siblings. Yeah. You've got to know that if they swear at you, it doesn't mean they hate you and they never want to work with you Jesus, again. Jesus, you're um, right. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Like- uh, Walsh and Jackson. Yeah, she didn't oh. direct it, though. She, she worked in close collaboration. True, I suppose. She assisted with some, but her credits are all right. Obviously, the director has to collaborate closely with the rest of their team. Yeah. But the co-direction side of things... As we just established, throughout the Renaissance, mostly co-directors. Mm. Yeah, Possibly it, that's got something to do with the fact that the workload on an animated movie is so huge, it's incredibly difficult for just one person to shoulder by themselves. So, Oh, as opposed uh, to Lord of the Rings, which is a walk in the park. No, 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 no. but if, if there's a culture of one person cannot do this all by themselves, you have to collaborate or this is not getting done. Um, then they might go into it with a bit more willingness to uh, give and take in terms of um, in terms of working with somebody. Also, bear in mind that with a film director, it's pretty much the director's vision that's going across. The director sets up everything, tells the cameras where to point, dictates how uh, people put in their performance. They get to shape it and mould it much more directly with animators. Yes, the director may come up with the ideas and the framing and how the script is going to go through the storyboards and into the visual element, but there are so many other people who are putting in their little bits of two cents of, well, I want it to look like this and all this kind of thing. I, I think there's just more of a mentality of collaboration with an animated film. I think you may have hit on it, actually, because I, mean, I haven't worked first in live action films, so I can't say for certain, but there is, I've seen and heard of plenty of experiences, even in animated films, with a single director where... The, the director is just pulled in so many different directions because there are so many different departments that need the director's eyes and approval on something that it, it can be very hard to get enough time with any one department for that department to feel like they've got everything they need at, in terms of feedback. So having more, so having two directors working together and being able to split up and look at different things from time to time, just having more hours in a day available between them could make a pretty huge difference, for, especially for something as collaborative as an animated film plus animated films are a very long production time generally so it may help that having two people to sort of coordinate may help just for the sake of sanity but also I think it it has the added benefit of having two different perspectives even between them because it is a very collaborative craft animation I mean I've seen interviews with uh, uh, let's see Rogers and Clements is that the Musker and Clements Musker and Clements thank you of them saying that which I am (laughs) weird thing to think of Uh, just the two of them talking about which of them they're they each recognize their own strengths and they recognize that I think it was looking at a behind the scenes stuff for Hercules Uh, one of them under one of them they feel is stronger at uh, story construction and making sure that a story is working from all angles one of them feels a little bit more like they get at the heart like the emotional core of something and you need both like a director's like the best films are able to succeed in doing both so by having those two different strengths in the director's position i think it uh allows them to be far more effective together than they can be individually the head of animation on tarzan himself was glenn Keane, someone we've mentioned uh, several times before throughout the uh, 90s who suddenly became one of my favorite animation 
people yesterday after watching him in, uh, in, in action in the extras on this. His work animating Tarzan, the movement, the um, soulful way he connects with Jane is absolutely mesmerizing. I adore Keane's work in this. I do uh, too. He's one of the best guys alive doing, yeah. this, doing this job. And uh, there, was a, there was a long period between, I think it was like Treasure Planet and uh, then he came back like fairly recently with uh, um, he did character design on Paper Man I think yeah and he did he animated a little short that I think Google uh, uh, duet before. yes that's the one uh, that is that going to be before uh, Big Hero 6 uh, no I don't think it's Disney affiliated at all I think he left Disney entirely oh crap I think I think well partly because I think he doesn't see Disney as a place where he can keep doing what he wants to do. He's the animation he, supervisor on Tangled. How do they not hold on to him? Uh, I mean, I think Tangled was original. Uh, Tangled, we're going to talk about it later. I think Tangled yeah. had a mess of a production. It uh, was originally starting out as a 2D film idea, and and Keane was going to direct it uh, at one right. point. Later on, he became the animation supervisor, uh, and he, I think, is the singular reason the character animation in that film evokes the 2D era so much is because he pushed very, very hard right. on the animators and on the tech people to provide the tools to allow those animators to get that 2D look and appeal. And he he is he's he's a brilliant guy. And I and I'm sad seeing him leave Disney, but I'm also kind of happy because I think given that Disney is not pursuing 2D actively at this point and won't be for the foreseeable future, I think him getting loose and free and out to pursue what he wants to do, I think he's going to actually be able to achieve much more. Keen's work on Tarzan, it's, this is one of the most impressive characters he's ever done because Tarzan represents a lot of challenges. Mm. One, he's human and humans are hard, especially if you're not really caricaturizing them and making them uh, squishy and spongy and goofy and just uh, yeah. very stylized. In many so ways, he, he's the most realistic human ever co- committed by Disney. In terms of his musculature had to be carefully thought out for every frame. Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges of, of all is the, the fact that he's not wearing a lot of clothes under which you can cheat a lot of anatomy and physicality yeah. means that well, that anatomy is super important and how different muscles work together and how different... and how joints are able to go it, it just it's very challenging but that's something that Keen has always been very very good at and also the fact that he had to invent a new way for Tarzan to move and interact with his environment mm-hmm. that doesn't feel human or entirely just like a human doing exactly ape things yeah and i think the fact that it just when you're watching it, it just feels right and seems like it makes perfect sense the way Tarzan moves and interacts with things and the way he picks up the bullet casing mm. when he first is interacting with the humans and he kind of holds it between his knuckles and the way he kind of is feeling it in a way that doesn't really look human but it totally makes sense as a way that Tarzan would pick up something and look at it. Yeah. It's You were mentioning like um, there are some really great interviews with Keen about his his process for animating Tarzan, and the one that usually gets shown a lot of the time is when he's talking about taking inspiration from the skateboarders and rollerbladers that he saw while working in France. He kind of took that inspiration for how Tarzan just so effortlessly navigates the trees and uh, and the jungle, Mm. and and when he's just running and and uh, sliding down tree trunks and stuff. But um, uh, my favorite interview is when he talks about 
the scene with Tarzan meeting Jane. This is the sort of thing that I just, as an animator, that I love hearing other animators talk about. But the scene where Tarzan realizes that he and Jane are the same. Mm. It's such a really quiet, subtle acting scene, and those are really hard to do, especially in traditional animation. And, and Glenn talks about how he drew inspiration for that scene from the first time that he saw his newborn daughter mm. and that feeling of recognition and amazement and familiarity just looking down at her. And he tells his daughter that that scene, that look in Tarzan's eyes, that intense look, that's him, that's Glenn looking at her as daughter for the first time. Mm. It's not love at first sight. It's he's described it as uh, Tarzan is seeing her and saying, "You're like me," and that's it blows him away. Yeah, yeah. That, that's uh, the greatest animators are both great artists. Of, they're able to draw exceptionally well, but they're also great performers yeah. and actors. And Glenn is at the top of both of those scales. He's extraordinary. In this instance, Tony Goldwyn's excellent and understated as uh, uh, Tarzan, but. Uh, it's Keen that really acts out that stuff and really the performance comes through that way. There's so much physicality to the guy. Uh, the, the whole movie hinges on him. If he was standing around... If you... Right, folks, if you've got a two-disc DVD of it, go to the uh, disc two, go to uh, the development of Tarzan in the characters section and just slowly flick through the process of how they started like drawing designs of Tarzan and, and the white direction they went and just say to yourself why it's not yet Tarzan and just you know, go through a note he's t- standing too straight he's too boring looking he's too pretty looking he's too normal looking his um, legs are at a, a weird angle and it just it looks like he's he's not going to be able to move in the way that Tarzan can and slowly over time they find Tarzan, and it's amazing to actually watch through and to look at the thought processes and the body shapes until they finally it comes out at the point where he's sta- it's they, they figure on how Tarzan will stand when in repose and it's not standing straight back to straight legged he's almost got he's almost bow legged but he's got himself tensed and ready to spring but in a kind of relaxed way where he's just sort of resting back on the balls of his feet and and that's where they found him that that readiness to act yeah mckean has always said that he believes these characters already exist and your job is just to find them yeah and i always love seeing the path of discovery that they show often with keen's characters in the in these extras just getting to see the process and then getting to hear about the point where they found it the that point of discovery because the success of nailing Tarzan basically elevates this entire film around him. Yeah. Just the fact that if Tarzan did not quite work, if Tarzan was... Hercules. If his, yeah, if he if he was Hercules, or even just like a John Smith, where he's just boring, <laughs> or too straight, or just something about, like... Because the, the problem with a leading man character in all these Disney films is that you can't just make them too vanilla, and too yeah. just not quite beast interesting. once he's transformed back into a prince. Right, just something is about them is just not that appealing, but you don't want it to be the goofy, like the goofy, weird comedy character. You want them to be the hero that you care about, but you've also got to make them interesting and engaging. And you know, Tarzan as a character is a complete success, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a reason why they, this uh, the, the film will make you immediately think of him and not the, the stuff around him. It's then the rest of it that then fleshes that out and enriches the world around him. 
the second Sabur fight, the actual um, triumphant moment, and they're, they're, it's so whip quick and so like you are really aware of how sharp those claws are, how much power lies behind the jaws, and the the Tarzan keeps sort of moving his body, and every single movement he moves, and the paw goes swiping at his uh, shoulder, and then he moves his other shoulder, and the paw swipes at the other one. It's like a martial arts fight, uh, but done at a hundred miles an hour in a way that they don't need to speed it up, and they don't need to do clever camera tricks. And as described by Keen, if this was done in live action, it would kill the actor. <laughs> it's absolutely breakneck astonishing. I, I adore this. This. Kind of, this almost um, lays down the blueprint for Spider-Man. Yeah, actually. Before Spider-Man turned up, this is a better Spider-Man film in a way than Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. It's an ex- this is an exceptionally well-directed action scene. A, a good action scene has is telling a story beat with every movement. It, yeah. It's if it's just two characters fighting. We're fighting. Sort of, if you look at a lot of the prequel film fights like a uh, prequel star wars film fight scenes it's a lot of really cool choreography and cool cool fighting but there's but a just lot putting of the swords in the right place they are there's lots of just fighting where it's just nothing is really happening in the back and forth it's just a lot of fighting a lot a lot of very them doing carefully cool choreographed stuff. very rehearsed yeah like a, a good action scene you can still have all that great choreography but there needs to be a push and pull there needs to be dodge parry attack each characters having the upper hand and then losing it and then uh, you look at this Tarzan scene there's he's always being chased there he will have his weapon at the ready he'll get a slight hit against Sabor but then he'll be pushed back and then he'll the mm. spear will break he'll get away from Sabor but then try to come around for a counterattack but then Sabor's not where he thought he was and that yeah. it's it's a story beat happening ev- with every single part of the scene that keeps you completely engaged and completely just wrapped with the tension there's no right, posturing like, either. There's none of that. If, yeah. you, if it was uh, two humans fighting each other, they'd be talking at each other or like gesturing, sort of like, come here. No, you come here type fight. But this is basically, they're just looking for an opening and both of them are just uh, 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 glaring at each other. And when Sabur does that like little zigzag where he's, he, he sort of, you know, he's been backing up and then he goes left and then dodges straight in with the right and then you're like, oh, Jesus Christ. He's, it's just so scarily immediate. Yeah, it's a great fight scene in general. Great action mm. scene. Ooh. Anyway, so uh, after that, it uh, it cools down for a, a like a fraction of a moment, and we get to see uh, uh, Archimedes, Q Porter, Jane, and uh, Clayton, and then you get the baboon sequence, which. I think just after the incredible danger of Sabur, you need to just sort of relax, have a breather, and have a laugh. And they, they just about balance the fact that the baboons are threatening, but it's also it's a comedy sequence. It's I mean specifically when Tarzan's holding Jane by one foot. I don't know if like, he holds her with, with both his both of his feet, like grips onto her while he's swinging through the air, and all the baboons are hanging off of her. Yes, I think so. It's wonderfully choreographed, the whole sequence, and it's just so... It makes use of the jungle as a space, and if you weren't sold on the fact that the, what the jungle is like before, you definitely are by the end of it. They're just that the, the immensity of the trees, and it just comes down to the fact that when they finish off, 
Jane is really out of her depth, and she's had uh, all of her like before it started. She was a Victorian genteel lady, and she was clad in in all the fineries that's totally inappropriate for the environment. And already she's she's lost a boot, she's uh, ripped a bit of a glove, her hair's all awry, and she's hanging off a tree with a man who talks to monkeys. This all plays in with the sequence where Tarzan makes contact with her. It's an incredibly subtle and intense I hasten to say sensual for, for Disney because obviously they, they they had to sort of keep be careful with it and that they kept just on the right side with the ha get off get get off and she kicks him off in a kind of you know just okay right there are boundaries on this one so it's they just about get the comedy right but at the same time he doesn't come off like this disgusting rapist I think uh, it's the, the the innocence of him at that yeah, point. Though. Yeah, he's he's a very naive character. Animal curiosity. Um, exactly, and you you kind of see that. It's not like Rocky. His... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kind of see that throughout his um, his character development because one of the great things about Tarzan is because he has so few words, particularly when he first meets Jane, he can't tell much he has to show everything mm. most of what you learn about Tarzan's character is through demonstration and to have that entirely in a character I mean that is a skill to be able to do that successfully is a very skillful thing um, in animation even more so because you don't have the advantage of an actor who can add um, sort of unconscious movements and facial cues and, and things to the way that they put themselves across but I think you've you've kind of seen in the way he's tried to fit in with the the gorillas and and convince Kerchak that he can be the best ape he can be. See, this was something that really struck me about Tarzan. It would have been very easy to do this narrative of the, the outsider that joins the group and then becomes the best one of the group that there is. Yeah. And it would have been very simple to fall into that hole I think but because Tarzan is actively trying to fit in and be accepted he's he's not trying to be competitive with the other gorillas he's just trying to prove himself and I think part of the uh, the advantage of having Turk as his best friend being female is that that competitive element is avoided almost entirely because what he's tr- what he has with Kerchek, although obviously there is that kind of uh, father son dynamic, it's <laughs> it's not what I would call competitive. He's trying to show Kerchek that he's worthwhile and the the whole he's attack trying to prove himself with, to Kerchak, not prove that he's better than Kerchak. Exactly. And that whole attack from Sabur, he's trying to defend Kerchak. He's trying to protect him. Mm. No matter what Kerchak thinks of him, Tarzan sees him as his father. And he he responds to, to defend him in that way. And when it moves into the uh, the scene with the baboons, again you've got him demonstrating uh, that sort of instant protectiveness of of Jane and trying to defend her and and make sure that she's safe. Everything that comes through about him is he he cares about the the beings around him and he wants to keep them safe. That's in it permeates just about everything that he does in the first two thirds of the movie. 
Um, and I think that because when Jane first turns up, it's it's very easy to sort of go, well, it, she is she is kind of damseled a little bit in that scene because it's like she's instantly thrown into danger so that Tarzan can save her. But I think that that's got more to do with the fact, or at least for me, it had more to do with the fact that he's got to show her. He can't tell her, I'm safe, I won't hurt you you know we, we have a connection here he has to be able to demonstrate it and by having that situation arise he can he but he and also he doesn't do it in an aggressive way he resolves that situation with the baboons diplomatically yeah he does it by effectively you know separating the two parties and going right okay what was this all about the drawing okay jane can obviously live without that drawing was it this one yep there you go okay you as you were, yeah. and everybody goes away more or less happy. Yeah, absolutely. He, he doesn't um, uh, prove that he's the big strong man who can defeat all baboons. He's like, uh, this is the law of the jungle around here. All baboons get their pictures. <laughs> Something like that. But we, because we know he's tough. He yeah. just killed a leopard. We just yeah. saw that. But that's not what's needed in this scenario. So you get two conflict situations very in quick succession after each other. And he resolves them in completely different ways. Yeah. Well, uh, also, Sabu was not able to communicate with him or had no interest in doing so. The baboons were able to. It just yeah. required them to stop and discuss it for a moment. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Again, there's the, there's the primates as opposed to uh, uh, um, predatory mammals. Which is, an, yeah, I, and I, I agree with you totally about the, the idea that uh, Tantor should have spoken a different language to them that they you know they could have been some kind of cross communication between them but that they shouldn't have been speaking in yeah. english together but they, they were pushing too hard for simon and pumba as i said we'll yeah. about them very very shortly actually just to go back to the the, the bit with the um uh, the, the first communication the connection as i said before jane's lost her uh, boot and that that bare foot it's a really nice spot of vulnerability, and uh, it's, it's like she's slowly shedding the bits of Victorian paraphernalia and becoming more accustomed to the jungle. And just by the end, obviously, she's uh, clad in a much more sensible uh, skirt and vest combo and has basically learned to sort of adapt. And I mean, ultimately, this whole film is, is, a, is about a triumph of uh, modern-day man adapting to uh, the most primal of environments and thriving without actually trampling on the um, the land and the uh, animals around it. And Minnie Driver plays her, and God, she's wonderful. I've always liked Minnie Driver because she comes off as extremely smart and fun and funny, and uh, Gross Point Blank had just come out uh, a few years before this, and Good Will Hunting, uh, I think the year after, and so this was like, you know, one, two, three, and I love Minnie Driver. Oh, I'm in a tree with a man who talks to monkeys. Oh, I can't do this, I can't, oh, oh this is good. This is, this is very good. I, oh, wait here. One, two, oh, it can't get any worse, can it? Obviously it can. Stay back. No, no, don't come in, don't come any closer. Please, don't. Serves you right. So you stay away from me, like a very good wild man. You stay. I'm warning you. 
My father won't take Kylie to you. No, that's now that's close enough. How dare you? What? Oh. Oh. Um. Oh. Oh. Oh dear. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> yes, thank you. That's a lovely heartbeat. <laughs> it's very nice. It's very nice. Oh, thank you. I can't do a thing with it in this humidity, though. It's. You do speak. And all this time I thought you were just a big, wild, quiet, silent person thing. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? I mean, I must say I'm rather curious to who you are. I mean, I'd love to. Tarzan. 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 Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Tarzan. Oh, I see. No, no, no. No. <clears throat> I'm Jane. No, no, no. No. I'm Jane. No, no. Jane. Tarzan. Jane. Jane. Exactly. Clayton! Clayton! Extraordinary. Um, please, can you take me to my camp? <laughs> yes! Clayton! Wonderful! Um... Can't we woo! Have there been any female leads in any of these uh, previous Renaissance films that have been able to, or been allowed to play the comedy angle so strongly? I can't think of any. There's something hapless about Jane which makes her funny, as well as being uh, funny in her delivery. It's, yeah, I mean, she's still like a lead character that you respect and care about what happens to her, but she's absolutely played, oh, especially Megara. early on, played for comedy very... Yeah, Megara is as well, though it's sort of more of a, like a... It's an acerbic comedy. Yeah, sort of a, just a sarcastic obser- observing those around her, like uh, d- observing stupidity around her and being sarcastic yeah. about it, but like, and actually being able, being sort of the... I mean, Jane is sort of the butt of the joke sometimes but sometimes but not in a mean kind of way she's just out of her depth and that's funny i think that's part of the key though of having um female characters who get developed in this way that they are allowed to be more than one thing yeah yeah i mean megara has the as you say she's got the acerbic wit and she's also very sharp and she also gets to be uh, vulnerable and caring and that's part of what rounds her out into that fully fleshed character and Jane even more so especially if you consider that they've they kind of gone out of their way to make her reminiscent of Belle mm. when you first meet her she's wearing this long yellow dress right. which is obviously patterned after Belle's ball dress her relationship with Archimedes is extremely similar to Belle's relationship with Maurice yep. um, and 
you know, you've even got that little teapot set in the camp, which is mm. Mrs. Potts and Chip <laughs> and the the other kids, which is lovely, really sweet touch. Um, but you know, they were obviously trying to evoke Belle with her character. However, she goes one step further, and in fact, ends up several steps further than Belle because she has that room to develop into mm. um, a, a fully fledged person who has um, not just vague. Uh, ideals as Belle had you know I want adventure in the great world somewhere Jane actually has ambitions she's an artist she's an explorer she's you know it would appear a joint partner in her father's research into uh, what these gorillas do Mm. so all of that gives her um and I, I think it's really key that she have it at this point because she's the connection with the civilized world that we never see. Through her, we get this, these little glimpses of what, in effect, if you look at it from a certain angle, Tarzan is missing. Yeah, actually, she complements him perfectly as a character. Um, the reason that I, I mentioned that uh, Tony Goldwyn technically delivers less than Glenn Keane is because it he doesn't have to deliver as much it makes perfect sense that Tarzan while he's this incredible physical presence and can actually do all of this stuff and at a breakneck speed he's actually got a very stoic very uh, quiet very calm uh, demeanour and, and the way he uh, uh, talks and delivers his lines in contrast Jane's very animated and won't stop talking he stills her and gets her to be quiet and she brings him out and gets him to start talking more until they get to a point where they meet in the middle. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, they both have the same curiosity for each other and they're, they're both very lively as characters. And um, it's it's very sweet the way their relationship develops because it's very non-verbal. He doesn't have those cultural uh, trappings which basically is like, right now, how does this courtship commence? The, the closest he comes is seeing that picture of that the, the, the fop with the flowers and going, right, I guess that's how you do it. And it, it, he sort of tries to um, play by her rules in, in order to actually uh, win her. But really, ultimately, he, doesn't, he shouldn't have to do that anyway. She's fascinated with him already. There's something very honest about their relationship as well, I think, because they can't really lie to each other. Yeah. They can't, you know, if she tries to manipulate him, he's not going to understand. If he tries to uh, overcompensate and be arrogant with her, it's not going to get any response. It wouldn't work. So the the things that often make uh, relationships fall down, they kind of bypass all of that straight away. And I think that is reflected in the whole, like you said, about the idea of a a man who should be born in the civilised world. And Tarzan is not just a a non-jungle human, if you like. He's, you know, he he comes from a world which is, is... modern and has all of the trappings of modernity he's an aristocrat he comes from wealth um he if he'd grown up in in where he was supposed to if you like he'd have had all of this stuff that you see by having him stripped down to the the basics of what a human is he doesn't need at all and his connection with jane is very um instinctive and very 
I suppose, basic in inverted commas as well. But you see through that how well it works. And she gradually responds to the jungle in the same way that she responds to him. And as she said, she loses the boot, she loses the glove. And gradually, one by one, all of these bits and pieces of totally unnecessary fancy clothing that are entirely society-based and not really anything to do with the actual practical task that she's got at hand fall away from her. And she can actually feel the jungle she the first thing that goes is her boot she can feel it under her feet um which yes it's a it's an immense vulnerability but it's also the, the soles of your feet are very communicative when you walk on different surfaces it makes you feel all sorts of, of different um things they're very sensitive and you need them for everything you know your, your balance and all the rest of that it, it goes through the soles of your feet tarzan is unable to climb the ship properly because he doesn't have his Absolutely. feet available to him. He has Absolutely, shoes yeah. covering them. Yeah, that's that's the first thing about him that he gives up to try the, the civilised world that he realises that's really not going to work. Yeah. And it's the first thing she has that connects her with it. Notably, the jungle takes from her this boot, this ridiculous, very useful tool if you're trying to keep your feet from getting cut and hurt on the stony ground, and repurposes it into a rather fetching baboon hat. Mm, indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, what took you so long? I had a little pest control problem, but it's all taken care of. Oh! Hi, guys. Turk, what is this? Some kind of joke? Tell me I'm not looking at the hairless wonder. Well, Turk said I could come along if I can keep up. Oh, no. No, no Turk. Turk. Come on. No. I'll handle this, guys, okay? Listen, buddy, come here. We got a tiny little itsy-bitsy problem here, okay? Personally, I'd love to hang out with you. You know I would, but the guys, they need a little convincing, you know? Okay, what do I gotta do? Do? What do you gotta do? <laughs> oh, it's so stupid. What? Well, you gotta, uh, you gotta go get a hair. A hair? Yeah, a hair, uh-huh. An elephant hair. Dan. Yeah. Rosie O'Donnell is Turk. Go. Right. <laughs> you got the easy job. Uh, I don't know. I don't... I actually don't feel like I have strong feelings toward about Turk or Rosie O'Donnell's performance one way or another. She does... She is obviously kind of one of the more... One of those celebrity stunt cast kind of... Uh, the Eddie Murphy of this film. Mm-hmm. Who did the, all the know. kids like? Well, Rosie O'Donnell, obviously. <laughs> so they, they, kids love Rosie O'Donnell as much as they love Phil Collins. I don't dislike... There's not, not a whole lot about Turk that I strongly like or strongly dislike. She's so abrasive and in your face. and She's too much. Sorry, I'm interrupting you. Carry that's on. That's okay. Well, that's the thing. I have nothing to say. <laughs> uh, it's... She, yeah, the fun she has arrived. Thank you very much. Ah, an Elvis impersonator. Thank you, Rosie. Yeah, I just I don't think she adds much, but I don't think she. But well, I think celebrity <laughs> stunt casting gone really wrong. I think. Oh, that, uh, she's way better than Martin Short in Treasure Planet, though. Right, right. You want to talk think, about a bullet in the head of a film? No, I think actually I think Hercules. I think what is it? Paul Schaefer as 
as Hermes. Fortunately, he's only in it for a little bit. Right. Yeah. If he just shows up and that's the danger of celebrity stunt casting. It's, mm. if it's, it is in itself reference humor in it's a weird sort miss, of way. Yeah. It is based, it is essentially like, Hey, here, that's the thing. I, I barely even know who Paul Schaefer is. So <laughs> when a character shows up clearly doing a bit of being an amplified version of himself and I mm. look at it and I think, I bet that's somebody. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I bet that's somebody, and they're clearly being themselves. I don't know who that is, but that that their only reason for being in this movie is for the the audience to go, oh hey, it's them, and that's the only reason they're in the movie. And yet we are on the cusp of the decade when stunt casting of celebrity voices would rule the roost for DreamWorks. Where basically the original poster of Shrek was Murphy, Myers, Diaz, Lithgow. Yep. These are the four characters. These are the four actors. Kids come for the fairy tales. Adults come for the actors. And to the point as well where they would replace actors transatlantically because they weren't entirely certain that the other side of the pond would get the joke. Daniel Floyd, you will never have to deal with this because you come from America and occasionally Canada, but you have no idea how insulting it is to have Joan Rivers replaced with, who was it? British showbiz reporter Kate Thornton. That's not a joke for her. That's a joke for Joan Rivers. It's not even that funny of a gag. She's just being Joan Rivers. But when you take that away and you make it someone else, it's not even a gag anymore. They then switched out Larry King as the ugly sister in Shrek 2 and got Jonathan Ross for the British version but couldn't be bothered to keep continuity on that gag and it's just Larry King in Shreks 3 and 4 in England. Uh, yeah, I, I don't like the celebrity voice actor casting decision. and so, Just knowing that so many of my favorite characters in animated films are... I love them because of them i love them because of their unique personality mm. and maybe maybe a celebrity can voice them but if they're actually bringing a character to it and making it not just an avatar for the celebrity in this world absolutely when but when then, Muf- when james Earl jones came in for, to play mufasa he oh, was james yeah. Earl jones absolutely but he was mufasa he absolutely was yeah like he it's still his voice but he's bringing that character and the character is who you fall in love with not mm. the performer who's just wearing that character for a little while. So, so yeah. like I Somehow Eddie Murphy manages it for both Donkey and Mushu. He manages to juggle being himself and being that very vibrant character in, in both cases. Yeah, and in this case, like, I don't feel Rosie O'Donnell... She doesn't get, many, get, get a lot of time to really detract. <laughs> but she's, she's in it a lot during Young Turk and very... Or young Tarzan and very early... Tarzan, adult Tarzan. It's because you don't stuff. have Jane for for um for the comedy and the 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 explaining about Tarzan so much. And the interaction, I yeah. too, I guess. But yeah, but after Jane comes in, Turk mostly disappears, except for a few scenes. And and Wayne Knight as Tantor. the elephant Tantor. Yeah. Thank you. Also, mostly disappears, except for a few scenes toward the end, which is for like for the best. Knight is a lot less grating. Um, but uh, I, I, I do like his occasional, you know, it occurs to me that Tarzan may be some subspecies of elephant. Uh, he's, he's amusing. But I think Turk's worth it just for the fact that 
because the second half of the movie becomes about Tarzan connecting with Jane, he's having to reject something and someone. And in this case, Turk is the voice of the herd going, you know, fine, go ahead. We don't need you. And getting really upset about it. So it kind of, it makes it worthwhile her being in the film up to then. She's nowhere near as bad as I'm probably, I'm making out. But as far as I'm concerned, this film is that close to perfection that if you just dial down Turk a bit. <laughs> it makes me, again, all the more surprised. How does the Lion King even work? Yeah. <laughs> like, you got Nathan Lane being super Nathan Lane. <laughs> Lie down before you hurt yourself. Timon and, uh, it astounds me that Timon and Pumbaa don't destroy that movie the somehow. The pig's a walking fart machine. He's a gag. But for and some yet they're reason, great. It's the innocence of Pumbaa that I, I love. So. And yeah, I, the heart of him as well. I mean, they, they kind of get that with Tantor as well. He's the one that, like, even the coloring, you know, they're both these brown, big-hearted sort of um, panchos. Uh, and the, the whole, you know, grabbing him, you know, I've had it up to here with your emotional constipation. That, that's a, a great little moment. There's even that point when there's that charge and it's like, they call me Mr. Elephant at that stage. The- the fact that, I mean, these two, like, Timon and Pumbaa basically take over the movie, like, of Lion King at a certain point, and then don't really kind of recede in the story until a good until a good while later. These characters are, it feels like they're barely in it at mm. times, and they're not even that re- that obnoxious, but you still kind of just wish, like, they still feel like weaknesses where Timon and Pumbaa do not. If you took them out, the film would still totally work. Timon and Pumbaa turn up when you really need them. When Mufasa yeah. dies... First of all, you need to present Simba with the option of being shiftless and lazy and dropping all responsibility. But also, you need that laugh. You need that levity that, that, that you, they bring you. need you. it to swing back yeah. the other direction. The tragedy comes way. at the end yeah. of Tarzan, and they so there's so little time really allowed to mull it over before you get the triumph and the ending, and then um, that it's not balanced in exactly the same way. And as I said... The, the strong elements of recurring, uh, just bringing back the Jungle Book, bringing back Beauty and the Beast, and bringing back the Lion King in Tarzan make it feel like they're riffing on that without allowing the film to become its own thing. And there are times when it's definitely its own thing, but then it gets sort of... It's on like this seesaw, and then it'll veer in one direction or the other, and when they're when it's balanced, it's sort of perfectly sitting atop all three. <laughs> I love it. Because, as I said, the, the, the strengths when it is doing those things just have, I don't know, just maybe it's just a, like a few animation touches here and there and just a little bit of extra detail and just a little bit of extra push and those beautiful backgrounds and that wonderful music. But it, it takes a lot to push me out of Tarzan and Rosie O'Donnell almost manages it on like four occasions. That's a, the core of the core of the Tarzan as a film, the emotional core works mm. Very, very well. Which same which is the same reason why I love Goofy Movie, which is also just really with the totally silly, goofy, gag-heavy, yeah. incredibly '90s film. <laughs> yeah, good for Kevin Lima in both cases. But if you go to Trash in the Camp, remember what uh, Howard Ashman said about songs? That uh, if they if you do a song right, if you take it out, the film won't really make sense, or that there'll be narrative uh, emotional beats missing, uh, which should really be there. Trash in the Camp. Let's ride out. Need yeah. it. Yeah, Two and a half only... years. Phil Collins messed around and they stuck that freeform jazz session right in the middle. It's they even fun. have. There's another scene 
that replaces it quite nicely that's in the deleted scenes. Yeah, it's uh, where um, Turk goes, uh, walks over to a bunch of artifacts like Grandfather Clock and the, uh, uh, the teapots and the telescope and talks to them like they're alive. Hello, weird things. Tell me where your leaders are. It's, I mean, that would actually be at home in The Lion King. And, and it's, a, it's a great little bit. I don't know, it's almost like they were like, right, okay, there's a lot of emotional and sort of like intense connection stuff going on between two grown adults here. We need something for the kids. And that's what Trash in the Camp is. Yeah, I mean, the only story B to communicate is gorillas come into the camp and wreck, the pl- and wreck it. Hmm. And I guess you don't really need a song for that. Yeah. Rosie said or, she I guess absolutely not even a song had to have a song, and so that was oh. the, the closest Oh, she did? Got. Really? Oh. Yep. <clears throat> Weird. All right. <laughs> I would have preferred her to break into an Elvis song. <laughs> maybe that was to do with her, um, the quiff. I don't know. Ah, maybe they wanted to go that way, and that's why Stitch did it. What's he doing? Look at him, Jane. <laughs> Moves like an ape, but looks like a man. He could be the missing link. Or our link to the gorillas. Ah, yes. (coughs) Where are the gorillas? Gorillas! Gorillas! Shouting won't help Mr. Clayton. He doesn't understand English. I'll make him understand. If I can teach a parrot to sing God Save the Queen, I can certainly teach this savage a thing or two. Gorilla. Gorilla. <laughs> He's got it. Gorilla. Gorilla. Oh, oh, perhaps not. No, 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 I think I'll take it from here. The occurrence of Clayton, if you uh, look at his costume, uh, it's deliberately uh, coloured and animated to resemble... Hmm. I'm blanking. What is you it? didn't it? Sabur. Oh, yeah. With the uh, sandy yellow, and he's got that big red ruff. It's I hadn't Sabur's even thought of that tongue. before. That's, That's very he, nice. As Sabur leaves, exit stage left... In walks Clayton, being the advanced, like, it's it's like, okay, Tarzan, you have now proved that you can kill the most deadly thing in the jungle. The apex predator. And now we're putting the deadlier thing in the jungle. And it's Matt, yeah. and he represents 
bullish British imperialism and total callousness and exploitation and manipulation. And there's a, a one point that, um, that they, they were trying to define the characters they were animating by one word, and that word in Clayton's case was suave. Hmm. Yeah. He hides he everything sub- beneath that suaveness. He is the sabor of civilization, of humanity. Yeah. That, I can't believe that never connected for me before. That's awesome. Sorry. And, uh, yeah, played by Brian Blessed, who's got that wonderful, rich voice. He should really be playing a good guy, because he's, he's, he's got that kind of avuncular, like Robin Hood's father and the guy from um, uh, Flash Gordon. Like, uh, you know, you, you want to root for Brian Blessed, you know, the enormous bearded chap. If you have the means, I heartily recommend listening to Brian Blessed's commentary on Flash Gordon. It's amazing. Here's some clips. Gordon's alive. What a build-up for my character, volcanic eruption, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> Brian Blessed and I just thumped them with my beak and my fists. It's our young friend, Duncan, from Blue Peter, and there's lovely Richard O'Brien. I recently did Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with him. He likes people who are in love. But he is barbaric. Peter Wingard didn't want to die. They said, cut, Ryan, cut, cut. We put in the special effects, Brian. I've never felt such a tit in all my life. Look at my lovely legs. I love it that in, in a couple of minutes the earth will be destroyed. I watched him die, you know. Oh, that must be painful. And then you cut straight to Rococo. Look at that sky again. Look at that rocket. It's a Rococo rocket. Isn't it? It's, it's almost like a piece of cake. But He's got that, Gast- that Gaston appeal as a character. Exactly, a big, sort of yeah. heroic, great, rich voice. The way they uh, um, uh, were looking at it, if this was animated in the 1940s, he would have been the hero. Yeah. He would have been the great white hunter, who uh, now in a modern context is seen as something of a, of a thug and a coward. Which obviously, again, as you say, whiffs on Gaston and, and are uh, all, already having misgivings over, you know. Okay, so you killed that animal. What were the exact circumstances of it? He's much more complex than um, Gaston, though. And he yeah. has... Um, there's something about Clayton that is clearly threatening. And although uh, Jane doesn't realise it until the end, she's not entirely comfortable around him for reasons that she may not be completely aware of to mm. begin with. Um, she, you know, she doesn't like the fact that he's so quick to get his gun out all the time. And, yeah. um, you know, they're there for a particular reason and he's messing that up and she's annoyed with him from that perspective. Um, and I think Tarzan's failure to recognise Clayton as a threat from the word go is to do with, again, him being ultimately naive in the ways in which the world works. But you look at um, uh, Kerchak's face when he walks in and sees that Tarzan's brought the humans into the nest. It's, it's not anger, not straight away. He's horrified. Yeah. He, he immediately sees who the threat is and he goes straight for Clayton. Yeah, yeah. Well, Clayton is, Clayton is capable of scheming and manipulation. He knows how to manipulate a situation in the direction that he wants it to go. I mean, Gaston, Gaston re- regards thinking as a dangerous pastime. 
where where Clayton knows that he wants something. It, it feels like the only reason he's here in the first place is a manipulation. He's pasting on a smile, interacting with Archimedes and Jane the entire time. And you, and usually, and just watching it this last time, I only just realized if you're watching him in a lot of those early scenes where they're just hacking through the jungle and finding the gorilla nest, uh, any time when he's not making eye contact or having to interact with Archimedes and Jane, he's got this huge eye-rolling scowl. Just, uh, mm. Yeah, I can't, he he's the kiff of their group. Just, uh, yeah, no, and also there's that Brannigan of the group. All into one. Kiff, he's, show them the medal I won. He's there because he wants to hunt gorillas, and he knows that going out with this pair is probably the easiest, best way to find them. And he's just putting up with them for as long as he has to until he can finally get done what he wants to do. He's he's got this pomposity to him. You take him for a fool. To begin with, you think he might be just a dangerous fool letting off his shotgun, but then uh, slowly you begin to see an animal cunning in there, and he starts to... It's not... You know, it's beyond animal. It's basically... He's like, right, okay, I see what I can do here. He's kind of um, the colonel from Avatar, but a character. Yeah. James Cameron's Avatar. Right. Yeah. He's not really evil. If no. About it, he's just entirely motivated by self-interest. Doesn't give a toss about anybody or anyone, uh, anything, but his own his own interests. Mm, yeah, and and he's so focused on what's good for him that there just isn't room in his comprehension for anything that hasn't already been assigned. Uh, you know, this is a resource to me. This is something that I can mm. use. He sees the gorillas as walking three hundred pound sterling bills. Yeah. No concept of them as, as even living creatures, let alone thinking, feeling, communicating creatures. That parrot that he was teaching to sing God Save the Queen, that's just a challenge. It's not a parrot. Nigel Hawthorne, that's uh, Archimedes Q. Porter, one of uh, his last roles, I think. This was um, a wonderful old gentleman, British theatre trained. Um, I hadn't realised until I started looking at all of the... Um, uh, yeah, he died in 2001. All of the development um, pictures of Porter. He's Merlin. If you actually look at that, they, the, a lot of these... Um, it, if you look at the actual... The way the figures are drawn, they're a lot more lustrous in their colour schemes and there's a lot thicker lines going on. But if you bring it back to the um, 101 Dalmatians era, they're... they're their faces are shaped in roughly the same way. They actually have that kind of jungle book thing going on. Um, and there's that... It's unconscious, but you make that connection in your head. And it, uh, Porter looks like Merlin without the long beard. He's just a lot less canny than Merlin. I really like his character in this. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea of this old gentleman you get the sense that he is doing this expedition because he knows he's not much longer for this world and this is just something he has always mm. always wanted to do and wanted to see before he goes and he's so excitable and childlike in his uh his, his attempts it's, it's really just um he kind of reminds you of like you know the, the the ideal um he's a father that we'd all like to take care of you know he can he can he can he can walk he can think he can uh, do all of his uh, uh workings out but he does have that, you know, he, he clearly needs Jane as a, as a companion. You feel like he'd be lonely without her. 
So when he makes his decision at the end, first off, um, originally he was supposed to just push her into the water. And it was like, oh, yes, Jane, you don't need to make a decision. The old rich white man can make it for you. But in, he just lets her uh, decide and then decides, oh, you know what? Actually, um, um, as you say, Dan, probably not very long for this world. May as well spend it with my daughter and in this place that I find so fascinating. It doesn't really take him that, much, uh, that long to really agonize over it. All the agonizing goes to, to Jane. But um, he has a zest, which is a, a polar opposite of uh, uh, how Clayton approaches the world. And very Maurice-like, like uh, like uh, mm. Sharon mentioned before. He's, he's, just in, he's just very enthusiastic. He's the best kind of explorer character. He's, he has no selfish aims he does not wish to exploit anything he's finding he just wants yeah, just to, to see and it. learn it and just to yeah he just wants to see it firsthand yeah which is a nice uh, uh juxtaposition against most of the explorer fiction of the age which was mostly the white hunter barging around shooting natives and uh killing all these savage animals to prove I mean, basically as i said Clayton would have been the hero. If you ever read King Solomon's Minds or anything to do with um, Alan Quartermain, it's kind of uncomfortable by today's standards. So yeah, ultimately, Porter is a, is a much more uh, uh, a modernised version of this man, but at the same time, it feels natural to that, that era that there would be people who could actually get out that far and just wanted to see it. There's really only two kinds of um, rich old men in fiction, isn't there? There's the kind uh, like Porter who uh, uh, just want to enjoy as much of their life as they can as, with the, the last few moments. And then there's the kind who wants to live forever and will uh, spend every penny they have and trample over absolutely everyone to do so. No one in between. Well, if you think about it, that's kind of the light and the dark sides of the force. Do you accept death and allow yourself to become one with the universe? Or do you fight it with every fibre of your being and endure in this kind of weird limbo state of being not alive and yet not dead? You're Dumbledore or you're Voldemort. Okay, so where were we? I think, Dan, you haven't mentioned Strangers Like Me. I mean, you you mentioned it a couple of times. Anything notable about this scene that we haven't uh, discussed? I can't think of a a single individual aspect of the Strangers Like Me montage that I like is just the efficient communicating of so much information and character information as well and seeing the in in a similar way as Nigel is just so enthusiastic and so curious and interested. I love getting to see Tarzan picking up so much information and being fasc- like being fascinated by looking up into the night sky and the stars and actually being told a t- just a tiny bit of information about what they actually are and just seeing his mind opened up and just blown by so many th- interesting fascinating things seeing him in turn helping to acquaint them and familiarize them with the jungle more like seeing him watching Jane trying to draw this bird and the bird flies away and then him taking her up into the trees because he knows where these birds stay. He knows where you can actually find d- dozens and hundreds of these birds and taking her up to that place and inter- and teaching her to like to swing on the vines the way he does. I don't know, there's just something really nice about this whole montage, both in the way it communicates information and I like the song. And yeah, I, I just really enjoy, I've said it several times, I just really enjoy the montages in these films. It's, I think they're extremely well made. 
I do like the way they get that balance of it's not just about them giving him the catch-up on here's what's going on in your world, you know, the world that you actually come from. He's giving them vital information about the jungle as well. It seems like a, a, a true cultural exchange, as it were. It's not just a load of stuff that's that are things. They're not just introducing him to trappings that we know as the audience he can live without. It is knowledge, it is information um, that they're passing on to him. And there's small little emotional moments as well. The, the, the Tarzan sneaks out of the the gorilla family camp and Turk and Kala watch him. And you get that sense of the adopted kid, sort of like the appearance of the ad- adopted kid, like as the adopted kid goes and wanders off and to his actual biological family. Like that sort of little bit of heartbreak of just seeing this pulling away and and Turk is there try- trying to kind of comfort her a little bit. It's just a small little bit of acting, just a few seconds, but it communicates the whole emotion. Like, you might have, up until this point, kind of forgotten Kala in this whole thing, in this whole fascinating meeting of worlds between, like, uh, Tarzan and Jane and Clayton and all the other characters. So seeing how this is impacting Kala the whole time is actually a pretty touching moment. Mm-hmm. And seeing little visually symbolic stuff, like as Tarzan is approaching the camp enthusiastically he starts walking more and more upright and he's imitating Clayton but seeing him closer and closer he gets to humanity actually starting to walk more like them it's just a great little visual touch that I like and this montage is just full of that kind of stuff Mm. Show me everything and tell me how You don't mean something And yet nothing to me I can see there's so much to learn It's all so close and yet so far I see myself as people see me I just know there's something Right now 
with you Take my hand There's a world I need to know They did say, actually, the, uh, the I can't remember whether it was the animators or the writers, but um, they wanted to try and get a little tiny bit of that sense of uh, the relationship of a, an a adopted family. And the idea that, because obviously in most families, there's child grows up, child goes out into the world, parents are scared for them because you know they're, they're worried about what's going to happen to them when they meet the things they've never come up against before but then there's still that excitement and you're happy for them because they're growing and they're developing and they're, they're moving and away from you and becoming independent and that's what's supposed to happen but with an adoptive family they they were saying that there there seems to be sometimes this sense of always being aware that you could lose that bond that you've built, that it, it, on some level, people fear that it doesn't have the permanence that a, a biological bond has, which I, I personally don't think is the case, certainly not inevitably the case, that those bonds can't be as strong. But they said they spoke to quite a few, you know, adoptive parents and adopted children, and they did sort of have that that emotion element that was additional to the fear when somebody you love goes away from you it's not just about you know what's going to happen to them but the idea that the connection between you is is not as strong as it could be i suppose yeah I and mean, not to jump ahead further than we are but that research and the bringing the adoptive parents in and research into that relationship do, clearly does inform the entirety of the scene when Kala takes Tarzan to mm, his yeah. his real parents' treehouse. That was such a serious sentence until you said treehouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The it, it's a wonderful again. It's kind of going back to that um, uh, visual storytelling at the beginning. Basically, for Tarzan is able to work out absolutely everything about his family by his surroundings without having to work it out verbally his discussion with Carlo is wonderfully sparing but at the same time you, you you can tell it's incredibly hard on both of them and neither of them want to hurt the other they clearly care about each other a lot so it's um uh when he, when he comes out in the uh, the suit they were they were agonizing over well should he have his tie tied how how would he even know how to do that so he it actually kind of works that he looks a little awkward in it and it's slightly too small for him because he's more muscular and uh, and has you know obviously taller than his uh, his father but at the same time it's it's constraining already 
and yet he's he's trying to fit into it. He's tr- he's this is the first shape he's having to squeeze himself into, at least since he first tried to squeeze himself into a gorilla shape. And this is the toll already starting to play on him of removing himself from the world that he's known all his life. It's almost like when he uh, uh, when Clayton um, captures him and uh, throws him in the hold. That's expediting what would actually happen uh, to him should he go back to civilization. I don't know if you guys have seen Greystoke uh, or read, read the book, but he's, he's not too happy going back to uh, the civilized world. It's, it's not... It's effectively, uh, living in the uh, jungle all his life, he has become a different creature. And uh, his sense of belonging to another world uh, simply comes down to genetics. Whereas what he's actually done is become a key part of this gorilla family. I think if you look at the comparison again with Hercules, because that's sort of very much this idea of somebody trying to find their true place in the world because they never quite feel like they fit in in the place they've been deposited. Tarzan is almost exactly the opposite. He has worked so hard to become a part of the world in which he's been raised. He is... He is, he is one with the jungle. It fits him. It works for him. He, Apart from um, having to overcome this uh, not quite being accepted by Kerchek, everybody else has accommodated him and, and made enough room for him to fit. And he's compromised in turn. He hasn't, you know, inserted himself forcibly into the way that they do things and made them go the way he wants to do. There's so much give and take in the way he's raised that it they've all become enmeshed together. Whereas Hercules was always very much this sore thumb sticking out in this environment that was really too small for him. And and finding his true place was about, you know, seeking out these mystery locations that are sort of always in the back of your mind that there is somewhere real for you to go when everything else doesn't quite feel real whereas Tarzan it's like the this as you say the genetics places him in that world but when he dips a toe into it it it's not him yeah. it really doesn't work for him the it's scene about in- resolving his confusion about where his true place should be I, the scene inside this ship really resonates with me is uh, it's it's a, a steel prison that to me is the, the the sense and feeling of being really out of the world you should have been it's like he's always felt a little bit removed from the uh, the world he's uh, uh, been part of and obviously he had the conflict as a child but then when he's trapped in the hold that's just far too alien for him he doesn't feel it doesn't feel natural at all and uh, his soul seeks to bust out of there which leads to him the the point when he's smashing himself against the walls and and Jane tries to stop him and he turns around with that (gasps) uh, expression on his face he's like a caged animal if you've ever actually gone to a zoo and seen a tiger really unhappy it's that but it is a little microcosm of what civilization probably would have been for him anyway without his connect like his connection to jane i think is the only thing that would have brought him any happiness whatsoever if he if they'd actually left on that ship when it comes down to what he's actually it's not the civilization he's uh, missing it's the companionship because obviously as a a, you know genetically speaking our bodies cannot crave civilization (laughs) 
that's a concept it's entirely in our minds and we have to understand what it is first in order to miss it but there's something very innate innate and deep down which Tarzan immediately goes ah that's what I've been missing my entire life as soon as he meets Jane so when he frees himself of these shackles it's um, it's the shackles of as he races back to help his uh, family he's pulling off his shirt as he, he does so he's basically just chucking off these trappings that he you know these the the false clothes and paraphernalia of a, a society that he kind of wanted to be part of but really isn't him at all and um, it's just a veneer and it takes two seconds to get rid of and then he's back uh, significantly they play with the light here the, uh, the redness at the beginning of the uh, fight obviously caused by these unnatural flares and then Tarzan racing back through the jungle is bringing back the blue and the uh, natural uh, moonlight of, uh, of that scene and then there's a great big comedy fight just like the end of Beauty and the Beast it's hilarious and great fun and the monkeys do fun stuff Kerchak is mortally wounded defending his son I, I was watching it frame for frame at this time and Kerchak reacts when Tarzan is threatened he's obviously there's been a lot of um, uh, action that's gone on so far but Kerchak is enraged when a, uh, a shotgun blast clips Tarzan and goes in to defend him and it had not struck me before it does happen very quickly. Yeah. But then, yeah, it gives way to a much less comedy fight. Yeah, and the darkest moment in Disney history. I mean, if we could possibly take away... Um, was it Education for Death? The whole the Nazi thing? <laughs> yeah. That's about the darkest it could possibly get. But this, with, uh, with Clayton... It's very originally this was going to take place on a riverboat, and it was going to be you know an overly heavy-handed look. Industrialization is what wrecked the natural world type metaphor, uh, but in this case they kind of bring the cages with them, and it's actually they get um, subsumed in the jungle itself. And at the point where um, Tarzan triumphs over both Sabur and Clayton. He's the one using his brain, and it's Clayton uh, who becomes an animal at that stage. Tarzan's actually trying to reason with him and to communicate like a civilized person, and Clayton is just slashing at him with his extendable claw. Yeah, in both fights, Tarzan mm. pushed back against a tree, kind of behind a tangle of roots or vines or whatever else, and the other just, just yeah, just mindlessly slashing and hacking through, trying to get at him. Yeah. In just this, you know, it's survival instinct precursed by uh, Tarzan holding him at gunpoint and then uh, mocking him with the sound effect and then smashing the gun to indicate what he feels about this thuggish civilization that Clayton has brought with him. And he's being the bigger man at this stage. But Clayton's a terrible loser, as all bullies are. And yeah, he falls to his death and is brutally hanged. But then we move very quickly to uh, Kerchak, and um, he, he does that. I've lamented this before, the sort of dying in the hero's arms scenario. But because um, we've kind of been earning this the whole way through, it's the closer of the um, uh, relationship, which we uh, badly needed. Yeah, Mufasa's the kind of the ideal father figure who actually talks to his son and tells yeah, him how he young feels men of about the 90s him. wanted and Kerchak was the father Kerchak was got. the father that they got yeah. that he kind of internalized it all and couldn't say to him that he cared about him until it was kind of almost too late 
Yeah, I joked uh, that uh, I didn't even get Kerchak. I because uh, you know we ne- we never got that uh, connection moment at the end. Um, but uh, I got Oliver's dad, and you were like, "Who?" Exactly. Kerchak, forgive me. No, forgive me for not understanding that you have always been one of us. Our family will look to you now. No, Kerchak. Take care of them. My son. just a wonderful moment from Hendrickson and apparently they had to they tried it with him standing up and it just didn't work it didn't seem right so they actually had him lying down on a couch in the dark uh, with this laboured breathing going on and it really the performance is fantastic and uh, that comes through in the animation as well there's um, uh, there's a nobility and a regret about him but there's also a kind of a um Kerchak is aware things are going to be all right. That he's um, yeah, giving this to Tarzan. He knows that Tarzan's up to the task. He's, uh, you know, he's not happy dying, but he's able to go with uh, a form of peace. Yeah, it's still singular in purpose, though. They like dying words being protect them. Mm-hmm. He, you can tell he. I mean, you can tell watching the whole film, but he is very, very that weight of protection of this group weighs on him very heavily. Yeah. And importantly, he's taught that to Tarzan. Yeah. That that's how this this boy has developed because that was his role model, somebody who gave everything literally to protect their family. That's what he's grown into, somebody who will do that. And that whole um scene where uh Clayton is ended, there's no well, hey, I achieved my ends, I got my victory. It's a very sad moment. He he is he tried to stop it. He didn't want that to happen. He's not the kind of person who believes that the end justifies the means and the fact that Clayton is is got rid of means that they can now all be safe. That doesn't matter. He still feels that it's a, a sad thing. Um and when he takes his place as the, the leader of the family, the, the protector of the family, he doesn't do the holler. He doesn't do the victory roar. Yeah. It's just very quiet. He goes down onto his knuckles and he leads them all away. Yeah. He puts the, um, uh, the, the silverback uh, position of dominance and it's, the, the whole thing's set up exactly like Simba sta- stepping up to Pride Rock and they, can, they can't really, um, you could set it to that same music and it would, it would, uh, it would fit. But again, um, it, it feels absolutely right for that situation. It feels like there's nothing that would have been better at that point or more appropriate considering the story they've been telling. 
must take your place in the circle of life. And there's a balance to it as well. It's, uh, you know, if uh, you start at the uh, very beginning and you've got uh, the death of, of key family members and then a balance is reached with finding a baby Tarzan and then you've got um, the death of Kerchak but then uh, uh, with Porter and Jane joining the group, it balances out. I love the fact that Jane's really conflicted about it. If it was like, oh, I'm bloody staying, then that wouldn't have felt earned so much. But she's really weighing it up. She, you know, she she wants to stay with Tarzan. She's not fascinated by the jungle in the same exact way as her father, but she she feels drawn there. And ultimately, she's wrestling with propriety. What she's uh, dealt with her entire life and basically it's the thing that's kind of keeping her back the whole time and stopping her from becoming uh, one with the jungle the whole way through she's got this propriety and no no no, no. you stay away like a very good wild man and um, it's just when she jumps into the water and gets completely soaked and her dress rides up that's just sort of tossing that away and ah and like you know even the, 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 the grabbing him with a deep kiss which they just didn't do in 1890 <laughs> And you get the sense Tarzan had no idea what was or, <laughs> like, the, yeah. the kiss is very surprising for him in a lot of ways. Yeah, he's like, oh, that, that that's good. I'm assuming that, uh, I mean, gorillas do sort of, like, give each other effects in a pecs, I know that. But it's not the same as, uh, le kissing en français. Uh, <laughs> which is how Lumiere does it. <laughs> But I do like that they do give her that moment of wrestling with do I like because in choosing to stay, it's throwing out every aspect of identity and yeah. pre- and previous like attachment to another world. Something that Tarzan was having to wrestle with, which is also what it was was a hard decision. So we're seeing mm-hmm. her wrestling with the same thing, and it's even to the extent that it's something that Porter hadn't even considered for himself yet until it just suddenly clicks. Wow, I'm like this is the thing I wanted to do before I died. It was even better than I thought. And I have the option of staying here. Why am I going back? Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the, the ending is also fantastic. It's again, I know I keep coming back to this, but, um, Jane is Jake Sully in avatar. She doesn't, you know, uh, she's the outsider who meets the, uh, um, uh, person, the native from this particular, uh, um, uh, j- uh, wonderful jungle and decides this place is so fantastic this this person completes me in a way I can't really articulate with um, uh, the uh, language that modern society has given me and then at the very very end it's got that ah, avatar Tarzan boom and obviously both of them snaffled that from the Lion King but again it doesn't matter because it's just a great way of closing out a film So, as you can probably tell, this film was hugely impactful upon me and massively influential on many aspects of my own writing. Currently, you can listen to my audio drama, Tiger's Eye, entirely free as it's being re-released throughout the first half of 2018 on the New Century Multiverse podcast feed. It's a jungle adventure between a giant humanoid tiger and a lost boy from Mexico. And it's all about how they learn to communicate and work together as their little worlds open up to frighteningly epic scale. Here's a clip. The red canopy of the jungle is just overhead. The scents are different up here. Plants of the air, not the earth. Insects in their millions chitter and buzz, filling the humid air with their cacophony. 
Flower petals of every shade and color part and draw open for them, invitingly. So much life. I can scarcely take it in as I lie panting for breath. He starts to say something. The leaves of the canopy detonate outwards and a hurricane of varicolored jungle birds dive bombs forth straight towards us. Time stands still once again as their frantic wing beats go languid and I realize I escaped nothing. I simply moved to the next part of the jungle for the shaman to continue the second wave of his attack. One hundred sharp beaks are bearing down upon us, flanked with golden eyes of fiery determination. I grab Miguel once more, throwing him onto my back to cling for dear life as we leap out into the air again, bounding and scurrying along the branches that crisscross high above the jungle floor. My paws grip and spring with renewed vigor. I slide over slippery moss at breakneck speed. Supple, flexible living wood holds us aloft as we plunge downward, following the trail with the birds in hot pursuit. I grab vines, pull us up, and swing across the abyss between trees, ever onward. But we cannot move fast enough, and I keep having to change direction to remain up here. The birds are so close now. I can hear their storm of wing beats. Several of them overtake me, and as I feel impacts upon my fur, Miguel cries out in pain. They must have begun to peck and stab at him. I spiral around to swat the closest birds away, and the inverted cup holds fast now greeted by the sight of a dizzying drop wheeling above him. There are so many. I must get beyond Haka's sight. I drop into freefall and grasp the nearest trunk, spinning away from it and doubling back beneath our previous path. We plunge down far. I reach out to clasp a divine as it rushes past, jerking out into a spin and putting as much dense foliage as possible between the two of us and the birds. In a short while, they are out of sight. I continue to move, outpacing Haka, hopefully confusing him. This is my territory. So go to iTunes, search for New Century Multiverse, download Tiger's Eye, starting at episode one, and get new episodes every week. Daniel Floyd guest stars in episode three. And also because it, uh, like I said, with restoring the balance, it goes back to two worlds, and it sort of reprises that and goes, "Yep, new balance. This is uh, Tarzan. It, 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 you know, uh, the lion has rejoined her cub. Peace is restored to the jungle." I've liked this film more and more every time I see it. Yeah. When I because when I first saw it, it, and I guess this is starting to get into what you were kind of wanting to wrap up with why this film didn't hit as as hard as it probably should have at the time but actually do you want to go into that list first because I get the feeling it's probably going to just lead right into what I was oh what my three drag factors yeah Uh, Turk and to a lesser extent Tantor are infuriating now obviously that's not going to be across the board but they're not as charming as Timon and Pumbaa no one was singing their version of Hakuna Matata sure this would be trash in the camp Uh, the soundtrack is intrusive or mismatched at times and that really comes down to the fact that Phil Collins probably didn't need to sing all of that and I think that would probably great with some people there's a fact the Lion King grabbed people by the fields this doesn't do exactly the same thing in the same way it does but it doesn't if you know what I mean like the, the, the song does the words do Phil Collins doesn't 
and then too much in the shadow of the Lion King, the Jungle Book, and Beauty and the Beast. People were seeing it and going, this feels like Disney just doing what they do well, which is not a bad thing. And they even adapted it to not be a Broadway musical for, for um, because the, it's almost like they were worried about riffing on just this, doing the same thing over and over again. And then when they veered away from that and like, let's not do Broadway musicals anymore, they entered a period of confusion. Yeah, I guess they just they weren't people didn't feel surprised by Disney features mm. anymore. Even even if they maybe would have if they'd actually we became complacent them and given them, them a it shot. But yeah, yeah it's it start feeling like and another year, another Disney film. They I were know, unable to really examine them as pieces of work unto themselves so much as another Disney. Which is which, to be fair, is hard to do when you when you're following an era like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. I don't King, know. Like, Call of Duty manages it every year. I mean, even still, I mean, it's doing successfully, but like it's doing well. But it's, I mean. Every year it comes out, a lot of people are like, "Hey, another year, another Call of Duty." It's like another Madden entry. It's it changes very little, but you know what you're going to expect. And if you want more of the same, well, there you go. But but then again, like yeah, changing it up, you don't want to be imitating Call of Duty. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a shelf life on that. I think there needs to be a refreshing renewal, revival, and a reestablishment of goals. Yeah, I mean, and I think I was in a similar place when I first watched it, where I would, I knew what to expect from Disney films. I was like a lot of other people getting pretty fascinated by what Pixar was doing and this is the same this is the year Toy Story 2 came out where yeah. Pixar was pretty much showing that they were they weren't going anywhere they were going to keep going and and bringing some great hits and they'd already done Bugs Life in between that's a and they've done thing. Bugs Life as well yeah, yeah so they were they were going strong and there and there were lots of other big high profile movies that year as well but the more I inspect watched a gadget this, for example sorry <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the Iron yeah, Jet, the like five people saw that. Was that this year? Or was that next? It was no, this year, this wasn't year, it? It was within a few oh. months of Tarzan. There were times when it was actually showing at the same theaters. Wow! As like as, as uh, the the difference between animating a two uh, D cell um, characters against three uh, D deep canvas backgrounds, and the bit with the sail at the beginning when Tarzan's in his crib and it just pushes forwards and pulls you into the the, the scene. It's just hypnotic and yeah. the iron giant where you've got uh, 2d backgrounds and a 3d giant it's kind of like both ends of the scale and both of them work so brilliantly oh they're great but yeah the more i see the film the more i get from it and the more i really have started to like it it, it i would not have always regarded it as one of my top pick favorite mm. disney films but it's definitely in that I, i've been starting to actually just separate as we've been going into these i just decided to kind of add to my little list of notes here just a one to four stars category of just like which one of these categories would i put this most recent disney film i've watched in and tarzan is absolutely in that top slot now okay and a massive massive thank you to our special sponsors this month including joel robinson abel savard sarah montgomery duran barnett tom painter finbar nicole Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote to his nephew in 1936 regarding a possible Tarzan cartoon. Uh, he, he stipulated three things it should be naturalistic in style, it should be humorous, and it should, and I love this, 
approximate Disney excellence. I think Edgar Rice Burroughs would quite have liked this. I think he would have. I think the Tarzan story actually lends itself to animation extremely well. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges that you have to figure out that uh, live makes live action very challenging, but I think animation is maybe the best way to tell a Tarzan story. It's hard, yeah. to, it's hard to imagine a better getting a better Tarzan film than what we've got right now. Yeah. So we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Put your faith in what you most believe in. Two worlds, one family. Trust your heart. Let fate decide to guide these lives. i yeah.